0: come to it we wanted people to walk in and kind of feel this like little bit of a not just a time warp but like a societal warp like we wanted you to come into larder experience something from a sensory standpoint that was nearly overwhelming and overstimulated <laughs> right from the smell to the sights to the sounds and everything so we wanted that to be hyper amped up because eating is a sensual act
1: Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I got to sit down with Jeremy Umansky, the renowned chef and owner of Larder. Larder Delicatessen and Bakery, as it is known in full, is an absolute staple and favorite of many here in Cleveland, housed in the historic Ohio City Firehouse, where the from-scratch Eastern European deli embodies Jeremy's philosophy, with a focus on the use and promotion of sourcing and foraging local and wild food, cooking as seasonally as possible with minimal to no ecological impact on the environment all without sacrificing on the intensity and the deliciousness of flavors and the overall experience. Larder was nominated by the James Beard Foundation as the best new restaurant in America in 2019. And Jeremy was further recognized as the best chef in the Great Lakes in 2020 and in 2023 with his wife and co-owner, Allie. Jeremy has a fascinating mind and it was a genuine pleasure to hear his thoughts on things far beyond the realm of larder. Although we do talk a lot about Larder 2 and his interests in mushrooms and foraging, koji, fermentation, culinary technology, sustainability, Cleveland's food scene, fulfillment overall, his motivations, and, and much more. This perhaps was of the most wide-ranging and varied conversations we've had on the show so far. And as a big fan of Larder myself, I had a lot of fun learning a lot more about Jeremy and his story. So I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Umansky. The closing question that I will ask everyone who comes on the podcast is for their favorite hidden gems in Cleveland. And in my back of the napkin math here, my my feeling is that perhaps We've got the, the Cleveland Metro Parks as the most widely loved gem.
0: I'm sure. Which is like, duh, that's not really a hidden gem, yo. <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> well, I'm okay when people call it out because it is pretty amazing. But I think the the close second right after the Metro Parks might be Larder.
0: Oh, man. Well, people,
1: you know myself included, really love Larder. And I don't know if it is so much of a hidden gem anymore since since you had started it but to start i I did want to you know let you in on this fun statistic um thank you (laughs) because there there's a lot of love for larder in the community
0: my light's a little washed out here but i'm sure i'm blushing as red as my flannel is so (laughs) thank you
1: (laughs) so yeah with that preface you know, I, I'm very excited to learn more about your own story and uh, about the story of Larder and, you know, how it, how it came to to be, uh, you know, one of most beloved Cleveland gems.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. How did it become <laughs> to be that?
1: <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe just to set the stage before we dive into all of it, you know, assuming someone tuning in has never heard of nor been to Larder before, you know, What is larder? Maybe let's just start with that, and we'll go backwards.
0: Yeah, so larder is an Eastern European Jewish deli. That being said, those have been many things in America at different points in time. Mm. So we wanted larder to be reflective of one you would have found sometime in the 19th century, as opposed to the 20th or even the 21st century. So from an aesthetic standpoint, Larder is in a building, a pre-Civil War building uh, that was opened in 1854. So they started construction on it considerably before then. It's in one of the older parts of Ohio City that was existent before Cleveland annexed Ohio City and they became one city. So we kind of, you know, did that sort of neighborhood building, you know, we wanted to find things of that time period. And then we walk in, you know, larder, uh, we retain as many original materials in terms of like wood and the molding and the walls and stuff as we could from the time period. Um, And then things that we had to bring in, like some of our shelving, our bookcases, that sort of thing, we found things of that period or within it that we could, could bring in and, the idea was for someone to walk into a space that was going to be brand new and feel like it had potentially been there for a hundred years already. I think we did a pretty good job with honing in on, on that I'd, I'd,
1: I would say so, yeah. I mean, it, it has a, a, a pretty unique aesthetic and, and just feel to it. Uh, and then the, the whole structure, I mean, the Ohio City Firehouse is kind of this like iconic building.
0: It, yeah, I mean, it is in itself. So um, and we wanted to honor that, too. So it's, it's really interesting that firehouse, at least in relatively modern times before it was decommissioned. So it was decommissioned at the bicentennial in 76. The crews that were working in there were known for uh, their cooking. And they would have like these open party, they'd open the doors and like be cooking and they had picnic benches set up um, on the patio there. what we have now is a patio and they'd eat out there and people from the neighborhood would come eat out there. I'm also told that this group of firefighters of that time period, kind of like a 30 year block leading up to the the (laughs) house being decommissioned was relatively known as like a good times uh, party house. So, (laughs) They had a good time there. They cooked food. In fact, uh, one of our uh, neighbors in the area whose father was a firefighter at that station brought us a copy of the Sunday magazine uh, that the plane dealer put out. Uh, Well, a photocopy uh, of the cover from, I think, a year or so before the firehouse was decommissioned. This might have been from, like, 74, midway through the year or so. Yep they were on the front page of the Sunday magazine because they had just won like the national firefighters cook off for like the second (laughs) or third year in a row with like their chili or something. I forget what the food item was, but they won the national firefighters, whatever. So a lot of intentionality went into, to finding larder, finding things from the period. And then also like cultivating this continued spirit of that neighborhood and what it was and what it's becoming. We just wanted to have all of that. In one place,
1: yeah. um,
0: and and there's many places in Cleveland that have like those types of feels. You know, they've been around for a long time. So when we looked at, we wanted this concept to be part of a revitalization of existing infrastructure. Like, where would we put that? You know, what mm. type of building would it be in? What type of neighborhood and all that stuff? And we were fortunate enough to find find Graham Vesey and and Marika Shore Clark, like the the couple that own the Ohio City Firehouse, and it everything just worked.
1: Yeah. We actually had Graham and Fisk on a while back to hear right. the story of their, their wine in a can and their home in, in the firehouse. But you know, maybe as a, as a way to, you know, hear the, the story of, of Larder, how is it that you guys came to connect? Did you have like, maybe, you know, just let, let's go backwards a little bit. How, how does Larder come to be going back to the original question?
0: So, yeah, kind of looping back in, my maternal grandmother uh, was a kosher caterer in Cleveland uh, at one of the synagogues uh, on the east side. So that's kind of how I got into this Hmm. realm of food, like specifically like Jewish deli, you know, kind of falling in through that uh, line of exposure. Um, I mean, I started working for her 11, 12, 13, like it was before my bar mitzvah. I'm not exactly sure the age, but it's somewhere in there. I was definitely in the double digits. Um, So, yeah, that all imprinted on me very early. I left Cleveland for a while to go to culinary school and worked in New York City and all this and met my lovely wife, who's a pastry chef and my full partner at Larder and everything. Eventually, we got to the point where we were going to go home, one of the two of us. And uh, my wife was very adamant that we wouldn't go to her home which is Norman, Oklahoma. And she really, she fell in love with Cleveland and the community here and the people here and just everything about it. And she loves the Four Seasons. She didn't have that growing up. So, you know, we we ended up back here. And around this time... You know, a lot of information in the Jewish food world is coming out about how the delicatessen is going extinct and the appetizing store is disappearing. And now these food traditions, even though they're beloved by everybody, people want to eat the food, but people don't want to carry the torch. And an original concept that my wife and I wanted to do when we relocated to Cleveland involved like kind of something similar to larder, but not necessarily Jewish deli, more just broad delicatessen, you know, European imports, that sort of thing, and baked goods. And we were thinking about doing it at the West Side Market. So, you know, even before we just started, scut, you know, saying, hey, we're going to do another Jewish deli or do a Jewish deli we kind of had this idea that we were going to focus on like this kind of mass market, European style, quick cuisine, which is delicatessen fare, you know, just done right, done in house and not done with, you know, bags of food that other people are producing. And then you're putting on a slicer. So Larder kind of morphed out of that as uh, our careers got to a position where we were ready to take on something of our own instead of working for other people, We wanted to also, people are nostalgic for things of a certain time and place, and that's great, but that makes food stodgy and uninteresting and uninspired and doesn't play against seasonality and and just natural variants in food and cuisine in a time and place. So we wanted to make sure that why we would use some of these archaic practices and method and technique within food production that we would still put modern sensibilities on the food we were we were creating and it's evident in things like our black and white cookie is not the black and white cookie you find in New York City and New England it's different Uh, but it's the same spirit same foundation we just we love that cookie but we wanted more butter flavor in it so we had to do a different cookie base and you know so there are things that we've put some newer sensibilities on through our lens of where we are and the ingredients we have and the people we feed, you know, so there, there have been some modern changes to some of that thing, but, you know, come to it. We wanted people to walk in and kind of feel this like little bit of a, not just a time warp, but like a societal warp. Like we wanted you to come into Larder, experience something from a sensory standpoint that was nearly overwhelming and overstimulated right? From the smell to the sights to the sounds and everything. So we wanted that to be hyper amped up because eating is a sensual act, right? It is very romantic. It is very sensual. Whether you eat for food or you eat hedonistically, it's still a sensual act for anybody. (laughs) You can't eat without engaging your senses. That's what sensuality is. So, um, you know, we really wanted to kind of fine tune like these foods, some of them are being forgotten and people are describing this type of food establishment at risk for going extinct. Mm. When we are going to, from a business standpoint, take a concept or mode of food or something that people don't know, or is falling out of favor, that sort of thing. Like realistically, how are we going to be profitable if we're, we're opening something that's going extinct. So we had to make sure we put some of these modern sensibilities on the food, local sourcing, which is important to us, deciding, too, that, like, we were going to focus on in-house production. And if it wasn't something that we could make, we weren't necessarily going to offer it, um, with a few exceptions of, you know, some really specialized local producers that do a great job. You know, we decided we would, when it came to seafood, we live on the greatest freshwater resource in the world. And outside of a report that came out last week about, you know, these supposed PCBs, and the, not supposed, the concentrations of these forever chemicals, the PCBs yep. and other things in our freshwater is way more dire than we thought it was. Outside of that, establishing a terror for the products on our doorstep, what is yep. here, using what's here, instead of using fossil fuels and all sorts of other inputs to like fly things from the coast and this and that. We're like, no, there's people, there's an industry here. We can support it. And By our support, we can make it better. You know, we we decided we'd fine tune and dial in on all these things with our modern sensibilities and our approach to economics and food use and not throwing things out and or even composting them. Like, find a way to sell them, get them into people's bodies. You know, just yeah. because some old textbook says we can't eat this part of that doesn't mean it doesn't have culinary value in some other application that we can capitalize from an economic standpoint. And when we do that through our motive cuisine, we do that with uniqueness, rarity, you know, um, but also like this is simple. We made it. We made this from ingredients that are here that are local with the technologies that we have here, which are very similar to what you have in your kitchen. Yeah. So this is kind of all the things that went into what larder is and why it is.
1: Amazing. So many fascinating topics here. I'll ask you about a few of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. You mentioned, you know, the, the carrying of the torch, like, you know, you could have just not had that desire. Like where, where did that impetus come from to be like, I will champion what is a becoming extinct concept?
0: Sure. So, um, I don't know why my brain is hired this way, but, um, <laughs> I'm hired with, I'm, I'm wired with a profound attachment to individuals and my, my species like humanity. And for whatever reason, I have a shared love for a direct individual just as much as I do all of humanity and where I feel that we fit into the world, right? Like everything has a natural order, a balance. Like we've proven this with harmonization and mathematics and astrophysics, like, and then we see real life examples of this before our eyes, just looking out our backyard, we see, you know, the scientific concept in play out in the real world, right? We have... We have codified explanation for these things. So through that attachment and through my lens of being a Midwestern Jew whose family fled persecution several generations back, whether it's the classic joked about Jewish guilt or this love I have for others in humanity, which has always been for me as a person has always been easier to love others than myself, too. That's, a, you know, we all have our, our personal defects. So through that, I've really been like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, why? I mean, I could do it like I why not like a, mm. this could work. I have a skill set to do this one thing that in the grand scheme of humanity, let's face it, like I'm part of a religious group of people, an ethnic group of people we now know there's a, a some DNA markers that Jews have that others don't. Let's say they're actually Jewish. So I'm literally part of a, we could argue, a subspecies of humanity that is about to go extinct. So the more I can do in my time and place to document, to engage, to preserve some of what I think are the most beautiful aspects of my heritage and my personal culture and who I am through the intimacy and sensuality of eating. Like I said, I I could do it. Like, why not? Mm. It just made sense with all of these things, right? With like – my individual burden i put on myself against a society with my my ingrained jewish guilt and then with my passion my obsession and my skill set like this is what made sense
1: was the the medium of expression always culinary arts like d- did that develop from your time with your grandmother or were you always just really passionate about food
0: Looking back, it's always been food. And as a kid, it was uh, very extreme. I remember. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I remember I was working for my grandmother at this time, but I was not in high school yet. I don't even know if I was in junior high. I might have been in like fifth or sixth grade. I heard that people eat insects. So I saved my allowance And went to the pet store and bought a bunch of crickets and mealworms and like was like toasting them in the oven with like spices (laughs) from my mom's cabinet and like eating them and feeding them to other people. I think I read in an encyclopedia that people ate insects and I was like, oh, this is cool. (laughs) Give that like I'll eat a bug. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So so you know, even as a kid, I was doing that sort of thing. I think. I did a lot of drugs as a kid and I had this fascination with glass and glass pipes for marijuana use and that sort of thing. Um, But it parlayed into like other types of glass and I became like really fascinated with Mason jars. And I would of course like store my drugs in them, but I don't know, 16, 17, one year I baked like cakes in Mason jars. I like canned them too after they were baked. Like I soaked them in syrups and then canned them and gave like family, like a trio of each one you know, for holiday gifts, I think I made like 40 sets that year. And I was like, oh, this is great. I don't have to like buy people things.
1: (laughs) You can create them. I just give them food and love. People, that's really all people want.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, my, my grandmother was a, you know, I guess a professional cook, even though she didn't cook so much as she directed the show. My mom is a, a great cook. My dad would put together a great salad night. He, make, he makes good tuna salad, and egg salad, and he does his salad bar, right? So He loves like dicing the peppers and opening a can of garbanzo beans and some olives and sets up a whole salad bar and everybody can make their own salad. Nice. So yeah. a little,
1: it's a little bit in
0: the family too. You know, things get imprinted on you in an early age. And it's really fascinating too that we're in a time and place in the 21st century where I can take a feeling, an idea, and emotion and turn it into an economic driver. It's amazing. And
1: I, I'm personally very grateful that you've been, you've discovered this path because again, Larder is amazing.
0: Well, thank you. But, but I'm just talking the humanity in general that we can, we're at the, the point in time where creativity can be an economic driver. It does, doesn't have to be based on the needs of society, like clean water, housing, industry revolving around those. Creativity is its own own industry. And we live in a period in time Arguably, this has been going on for several hundred years, but humanity up until this point, civilization up until this point, couldn't enjoy that. So we're ridiculously fortunate. In- incredibly so. I mean, we were just talking about somebody that can work from home on a beach. <laughs> right. They don't have to be anywhere. All the work they have to do is in the nether digital you know, spaces. And as long as they can upload to there and do what they need to do when they need to do it, they can be anywhere in the world doing anything they want
1: it's a it's a pretty wild time to be alive. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> Everybody should be really grateful. Let's treat the planet and each other better so we can keep doing this sort of thing, right? Don't we all want to get to a point where we can just be wherever doing whatever and still generating income to support our families like let's do it. We got to do it together if we all want to do it though. Everybody's got to do it. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit
1: more about creativity cuz you know one of the things you mentioned was how you try to balance paying homage to tradition and the traditional ways of doing things and, and respect for for that. But you're also innovating and you're mixing in all these other influences and, and perhaps that's the creative part. How do you think about that?
0: Innovation is something that for, for me and how we work is is very logical because every time we... Creativity is about creating delight And also solving problems. Right. A lot of times they overlap. Hmm. So for me, it's a very logical step because every time we solve a problem culinarily, right, what's the best cook on this or combination of flavors or this sort of thing, like we nail in like one key variable, but then there's all these others that are in flux. So when we solve one problem we inherently create all these others that we need to answer the questions for. So the creativity the the finding new ways to do things and 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 answer and solve and well that's just a consequence of being in a time and age where these tools and resources are available. It's also being in settings where tools from one industry weren't necessarily prevalent in another or non-existent and now we're seeing crossover like the past 20 years of a lot of medical and chemical grade scientific laboratory equipment, finding perfect homes in, in kitchens, Mm. things like immersion circulators, water bath holders, sous vide, you can get one for $79 and have it in your home. Now, Uh, at one time in my career, one of those machines cost $1,500 and looked like it belonged in a laboratory instead of in a kitchen. So all of this, you know, has happened during my time and place. So, Creativity for us, access to simple technologies that we can, because all these complicated technologies were extrapolated from simple ones, right? So we can always go back to the simpler versions of things and find ways that that work for us based on what our financial and general resources are. Mm-hmm. For example, I may not be able to afford the ten thousand dollar version of a piece of equipment, but maybe the Thousand one one can do the job I need it to do up to a certain level that's good enough for our quality standards. So, you know, these are, these are things that we dissect that we look at and it's not necessarily about making things exciting and new, but for us, it's always about making things more delicious Mm. And and in an economic standpoint, it's about efficiency too. So for example, If I invest $2,000 in a piece of equipment called a rotary evaporator, which allows me to remove, it's a distillation machine, but the distillation, we often think alcohol, I can distill water out of something. So, for example, if I were to make a demi-glace, which is a sauce we use a lot, demi-glace is simply stock, a lot of stock that's been cooked down to so little. Like we're talking at the restaurant when we make demi we will cook five gallons of stock down into one quart or one pint. We remove that wow. much water. Yeah. So when we do that in an open pot, it takes a long time. Someone, especially as it gets down to the bottom, one thing, there's a lot of solids in there and things can burn. It has to be nursed. Someone can't walk away from it. It's very sensitive. Uh, this is hours of work. I can do the same thing in this rotary evaporator under a vacuum where I don't move any aromatic molecules to the air. So, I can keep them all in the food itself. Inherently, before I've even started, my food will be 30% more flavorful than boiling this out in a pot because I've done it and I'm doing it in a vacuum. And time wise, it takes me maybe an hour to do the same thing that it took me 12 to 16 hours to do the conventional way. I can do this with a $2,000 piece of equipment. And this isn't the only thing I can do in there, I can I mean, do so many other things. That's just an example. (laughs) So we can harmonize modern equipment and sensibilities with all these archaic traditions, flavor profiles, rooting in recipes, put all these modern efficiencies on these and really be working a 21st century kitchen in a space that looks like it's out of 1850. This is where we are looking at, you know, progression of innovation and what it means. So many people have innovated. I think the innovative part now is the proliferation of information and data and technology to wider groups of people. That is the innovation. That is the advancement of humanity. This is why the printing press is the most important invention ever and you yeah. can't argue that. You know. Well,
1: someone said, some wise person, I don't know who said it, but you know, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed.
0: And it, it, exactly. And the future has been here. So you know that's where we feel a lot of our innovation is—is is bringing more delicious through food through innovation and technology to you with with these archaic and 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 rooted cultural sensibilities. So, you know that's that's where we look. If we're considered innovative for saying that we live in Cleveland and we will only source fish out of the Great Lakes, because <laughs> we've been showcased by this fish council and that, and written up about that sort of thing too. You know, if if that's innovation of saying like, no, I'm going to use what's in my backyard because it's delicious and it's really, <laughs> right. really low impact on everything else in the world compared to, you know, other ingredient inputs. Like if that's innovation, OK. <laughs> right. It, it doesn't need to be complicated to, to be innovative. It doesn't need to be complicated. <laughs> like for like I said, a lot of these things for me are just very logical. It makes sense to only use seafood out of the Great Lakes if my restaurant is literally three breaks blocks from the greatest freshwater resource in the world. Like why? Right. I mean, right. the, the, the
1: things make. that have worked for thousands of years, you should expect to continue. You don't need to like <laughs> create all this new stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know. which actually uh, I, I know another influence that, that you have, and I'd, I'd love to hear about it and how it's, how it's kind of layered into the larger technology stack, if you will, is, is your, your interest in, in foraging and in fermentation. Uh, yeah. As kind of a separate strand here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, and uh, luckily for me, like, as far as career-wise go, like, the, the foraging was something, even as a little kid, my mom knew, like, half a dozen plants that just grew in the garden or the grass. She was a, a very active gardener, so yeah. she knew a few of the quote-unquote weeds that were edible. She knew the the local blackberry patch she would take us to go pick in this little you know, thicket and eat blackberries up the road. And so that was kind of, even though we didn't do mushrooms or do a lot of stuff that, that all was like, as a little kid, like, yeah, there's food everywhere. It's just, we got to go to this trail to the berry patch or, you know, this part of the yard for the, what she called lemon clover, which is oxalis wood sorrel, you know, so that, that was always there. Uh, the fermentation, the meat curing and, and all this stuff and working with molds and and everything Uh, when I was in culinary school, I was doing a lot of stuff. I was a full-time student. I was pretty close to a full-time land manager of a vegetable farm that did a lot of work with the state ag school in New York, which is Cornell. So we did like seed testing uh, of new hybrid varieties, but we also did seed saving of old heirlooms and all this stuff in between. So I'm like working with like plant development for like flavor uh, and taste. And I'm, Working with a mycologist because we were like, well, what if farmers learn how to identify like five species of mushrooms concretely? And there was a verification program so they could like get these on their property or even help them in their fields because there's mycorrhizal inoculants that help with the soil. And then the mushroom comes up and you got food too and all this stuff. So I was working with with Bill Bacaitis on that. He was a mycologist out of SUNY New Paltz farming. And at that same time, I met a gentleman named Sander Katz. Sander's not a chef. Um, He actually was – he worked for the city of New York in, uh, like, urban development or something like that, urban planning. Mm -hmm. Um, And a series of events in his life brought him to fermentation, and he is now known as – The inspiration. I know he hates the term grandfather or godfather, but many people consider him that of the modern fermentation revival and movement we've seen over the past 20 years, Um, at least in the Western world, it can be taught, you know, brought back to Sander and his writings and everything he does. So I was literally doing all these things at the same time uh, working. I was killing animals on farms or I should, I'm sorry, not killing, slaughtering <laughs> animals on farms and butchering them yeah. and learning about charcuterie making and aging meat and all this stuff. And it all yeah. happened as I was getting this formal culinary education. And it just made sense to me that like all these things go hand in hand, they all synergize with each other. They all go hand in hand. One technique can benefit another. And over time, you know, we've developed something where Like, and now I'm running a restaurant where our food cost hovers around 17%. The industry restaurant standard is 33%. Wow. Yeah. Now my labor's through the roof because we do all these things to work with ingredients, but just through synergy of technique and byproduct or leftover amounts of something from one recipe or yield can feed into something else and transform with time and some microbial activity and a little bit of salt. You know, we're able to pretty much not throw anything away, or I should say we don't even throw organics away, we compost them, but not even compost organics until we've gotten a multitude of uses amongst many different components of any different ingredient. So that's, that's I guess, the non-hour lecture version of kind of how all that met and, and harmonized together and like why larder is the way it is. Um, that was all imprinted on me very early in my formal career as a chef. And it all just, just, you know, connected so many dots all at once. I mean, literally it sits at the intersection of all your
1: experiences and interests and it's the manifestation of it in in some ways.
0: Yeah. And from a historical context, too, and places where these types of food production are still just very widely and overtly produced as opposed to being like specialty products like they're in some parts of the U.S., you know, these are all like normalized, widely accepted, widely distributed foodways. So it, it shouldn't, you know, we're not doing anything new per se. We're just doing things a little differently as we should be.
1: Right. What, what does the commitment to using local Cleveland produce actually look like? How, how do you go about sourcing and thinking about, you know, the kind the of ingredients that, that you have available and that, that you want to use?
0: Yeah. So we have two tiers of sourcing based on seasonal availability. We have our first tier of sourcing, which is direct with the producer, in season, Odyssey, whatever it is. And we've worked with farmers and different organizations to do different things. So like, for example, Ohio City Farm, we bought out, I don't know, 200 roughly pounds of carrots from them, they agreed if we bought it out at a certain price point that through the winter they could store it in their cooler on the farm. And once a week when I need 30 pounds, I can just text them and somebody comes up. So, and we've done that with many different farm partners for many different ingredients. Um, uh, yellow house cheese, which is in Medina County. We bought out the remainder of their turkey flock after Thanksgiving. Uh, so we have, you know, 50 locally raised turkeys that are nice and big. They're all like 30 pound humongous birds. And once again, they have them on their farm. They have cold storage. So, you know, they're, it's not peak freshness, right? But these animals were raised by those people, went to the processor, the processor froze them on site and they've been They've been preserved in that state, you know, since they were slaughtered. So, you know, this idyllic of like, well, let's kill the animal and then serve it right away. It doesn't work that way, you know, for many, many reasons, because essentially too, and as far as animal slaughter is concerned, fresh meat is not good tasting for various reasons because of different enzymatic changes and fluid flush out of the body and all these things there's Flesh actually has to go through kind of like a little bit of a resting period before it's actually meat. Otherwise, it tastes like flesh, and most of us do not like that taste. It's raw. It's very irony. People now kind of describe that as like really gamey. Sometimes there can be musky or musty, musty scents on there from different glands in flesh that have different aromas. And you know, when the animal's alive, it uses them. that's it produces bo and different scents. And but those tissues originate in the muscle and. Sometimes I got to shrink up and enzymatically change and all this. So, you know, there's a a lot, there's a lot that goes into kind of, you know, what we're going to do, how we're going to source, but we try to create partnerships with any of our farmers and say, if you plant this or raise this, like we guarantee we'll buy it, you know, this much, or we'll say to them, if you're happening to do this, you know, we don't want to see you lose money. We want to get a good price end of the close of a season, you know, a lot of farmers raise things specifically for seasons, lamb for Easter, turkey for Thanksgiving, that sort of thing. If we can go to a farmer and say, hey, listen, anything you have left over, we love your quality. We love what you're doing. Don't worry about your leftovers. We'll buy them if we can come to a storage solution. And that works out really, really well with a lot of partners. So, you know, not everything is always like as local as we want it to be. So we have different kind of specs based on some industrialized produced foods. Uh, So we do get certified Angus beef. We try to get the Ohio spec as first and foremost. It isn't always available. So sometimes we get from the other pool. But we've identified a specific production method and quote unquote brand, you know, of a way of producing and a quality standard that meets what we want. So that's what we can sub in. You know, I can't get oil produced locally for my fryer. I have to buy it from somewhere, you know, there, there's, there's some of these things we like vanilla vanilla doesn't come from here. You know, (laughs) we do, there's, there, there are plenty of things that, that we use outside of our sphere, but when we use those things, we try to use them in really appropriate and impactful ways. And if there is a season to things where they do come from, we try to get them within that season. But yeah, you know, we're, we're using as much local as we can at any given time. And during, growing season here. We buy as much as we can and we do various things like we'll make a sauce and we'll freeze it. You know, we preserve things in different ways. We dehydrate them so we can reconstitute them later. You know, we do all these, this stabilization manipulation with, with these ingredients so that we can use them as much of the year as we can without having to be like, Oh crap. Now I got to order tomatoes from California because it's not local season or something like that. We simply say, well, when these ingredients aren't available here, we're not going to really use them. I'll have ketchup year-round, and it's Heinz. We've tried to (laughs) do the artsy and (laughs) ketchups, and people don't like them for various reasons. You know, Heinz is it, so we'll have that year-round. But outside of that, you know, any tomatoes on my menu right now are like green or pickled or something of that matter.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, I think one of the, the fun things is there's always something different. You have the staples, but it's, you know, whatever you have access to, it kind of determines what, what you can offer.
0: Well, and that's it. And that's where I think as society has progressed, this is where we've lost the, this is where us, as we're working to create a society where everybody does so good. So we all can have these awesome things, right? We've got to put the fun and the hedonistic pleasure back into food. And stop commoditizing it and trading it as a
1: future. Say a bit more about that. Cause I, you know, I want like the, the funny, you know, joke version of that is the, the sexual leanings of your, your Instagram posts. But like, is that,
0: is that what you're getting at or like, well, no, no, what I'm getting at is like larger structure. Like we've got to take food subsidies that we as taxpayers say for our government to, to put into certain areas we got to take them out of like corn and soy and switchgrass and that sort of thing. And we've got to start maybe not even completely take them out, but start putting some of that money into like tomatoes and lettuce and fresh meat for people that don't have access to it. And, you know, we complain about the true cost of food and inflation and what it is to go dining, the true cost of food. Oh my God. If, Wheat and soy and corn production were not subsidized in America. Do you realize how expensive these things would be? I
1: don't, I don't think I do. No.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, magnitudes of tens to hundred times more expensive than any of them are now. So, and in some cases we have the federal government paying farmers not to plant specific crops or grow nothing at all on their fields so that they can qualify for some Mm -hmm. of these subsidy programs and this and that. So, we've just got to put that money into smarter locations, you know, if we're going to feed people and if we want to recognize that, like, you know, economically a tomato could make a lot of money. We've got to start restructuring our food systems too, because we've got to put deliciousness first. That's the only way we can really charge more money for the things that we create. If they are that much more delicious than something else, then we can truly do it. So, We've got to get back to food systems that focus more on deliciousness instead of transportation and shelf stability, right? We pick tomatoes when they're green in the field and we put them into big trucks that are filled with ethylene gas to ripen them before they get to the grocery store. And because if it's a forced ripening and doesn't happen with the, on the plants and the sugar development and all the flavor development, it's all different, right? Mm. It's just an aesthetic ripening, not a deliciousness. It's not a quality standard. It just means we can ship them without bruising them when they're ripe and soft and everything and get them to the market and make our money. Well, if we kind of realize that we should probably eat as seasonal as we can based on where we are and we can enjoy foods from other places, you know, as kind of a treat or not a normal thing all the time, you know, we can still have our Great Lakes version of cuisine from Oaxaca. Yep. With some preserved tomatoes instead of some fresh ones. Like it's a like we can still create those great tacos and all that stuff here. We just have to think about how we're doing these things differently and use what what we have, right? Or create great systems that are going to allow us to have more without doing any damage to the outside world. Simple things like putting covers on our crops, literally putting a blanket on your crop will allow you to grow lettuce in Cleveland right now. It's that simple. And right. maybe a little space heater if if you're Garden's big enough, you know, so very simple, straightforward technologies like we we can do that. We've just got to start reevaluating all this stuff from the top down. And these are big conversations and they're going to take a, a lot of combating different special interests for various reasons. And what you have to understand is access to good, clean, fair food is an inalienable right for any individual. So when we force certain communities to live in certain neighborhoods for certain reasons, and those areas become places where people are afraid to do business, don't want to do business or don't think to do business. And the people living there or being forced to live there have to suffer and don't have access to fresh food and medical services and things that everybody in the suburbs and this and that gets like, we've got some big problems we've got to, we've got to look at. It can all be done through a lens of, of food.
1: Right. So it, just to peel it back a bit and and think like more holistically because like these are these are big problems you know and and, problems. And, larder, and and larder larder
0: but the, the point I'm trying to make is yeah if larder as a small business in Cleveland Ohio that does less than a million dollars in sales employs six seven people if we can do this everybody else can do this on varying levels of scale nobody has to do it 100 okay? percent right
1: and and this is the carrying of the torch
0: if if Heinz. And they do to some extent Soli said we will only buy tomatoes grown within 50 miles of any of our ketchup producing factories or hundred miles. That's a huge win, right? If yeah. Schofers in Solon, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, you know, Nestle's there and, and they're, they're looking at all this stuff. Now, if they can redesign how they produce food on industrial scales, To refocus on being able to pull food from many different places as opposed to centralizing everything because now we're noticing with scale there's contamination on the line and there's a foodborne illness. The whole line's got to be – if we can have distribution broken up now, right? We we, we thought like centralize all in one location was great, but then when things go bad, they go really bad. So if we can kind of separate, right? We've learned this post 9-11 with just everything. From terrorism to food security, like it's all. So if we can kind of start to decentralize and have these smaller hubs that are sourcing from these different communities and and keeping money there, and there's ways we can all start to synergize and harmonize. So there's room for Nestle's and McDonald's with you know Kevin and Kristen Hensley from Yellow House Cheese and the Ritman boys at, at Ritman Orchards. There's room for everybody at the table to work together. So we've got to just start doing it. Yeah. And, and even Nestle makes this one little change on one ingredient and says, we're going to source it only within a hundred miles of each food production facility. We have 20 of these food production facilities across the country. Each out of those 20, 17 can handle this specific food. All right. That's a lot of local tomatoes we're feeding to a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. And that's a
0: good thing. And it's keeping that, that those agricultural dollars where they need to be in agricultural zones, you know? Any of our packaging that goes out the door to customers is, is you know, biodegradable or compostable. You know, our benefits package, we do offer for our employees, our work life balance, like all of these things. Like this is Larder showing like, look what I can do. Just like Nestle is showing, look what we can do. Everybody's going to have a different thing, but we all have to do something.
1: It's a bit inspiring uh, to hear you talk about it. I- I'm curious like how given larder is just this one place and, and, and I feel, I feel you're carrying the torch, right. As like a beacon of like, here's how, here's a, here's a place where we've figured out how to not sacrifice on deliciousness at the expense of right. Like having a good business that's sustainable, but like, what, what does success look like to you? Like what, you know, like what, what, in retrospect, what is the impact you're hoping to have?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's the, 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 as me, Hey, I think success is for any individual to determine for themselves, right? So like anybody going into business, you know, you need to decide how much money you want to make, what's acceptable to you. Do you want to be a millionaire? Or do you want to be comfortable? Do you want to have something to pass on or do you want to enjoy everything now? Like what are, what goals do you have? And we all have these, some people are like, no, I want to be a millionaire right now. And that's important to me. And I want a nice car and good looking shoes. And that's that. Other people are like, I don't care how I look right now. I want my kids to have whatever they want and need. You know, we all, all have these different reasons we, we come at different things from. So we design Larder to be a small business and a one-off small business at that, you know? So that Larder is we just closed on the first portion of our lease and we just resigned for another five years. Like that's success. So right there, like Larder is successful.
1: Yeah, well, Mazel Touch. That's exciting. Well, thank you.
0: Thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah, we, we kept it open, and my wife and I lived the life that we almost want. <laughs> you know, none of us are truly there, but this is like, this is the goal, right? So, that I think is larger success. But I think a real measure is going to be who knows when I'm dead, when I'm, you know, whatever. I've put some literature out there that people can reflect on, and, you know, 25, 30 years from now, and, who knows? People might say certain things are ahead of their time or that I was part of a failed experiment, you know, that in short run bursts looked great, but in long run didn't have the type of viability that it needed to, you know? So, so I don't know, you know, how that's going to plan out, but for the time being, things are working.
1: Things are working. Yeah. Are, are you, uh, optimistic at that? Like at scale, things could change in, in the right direction.
0: Uh, yes, I'm very optimistic. I'm ridiculously optimistic. I mean, even, even with like any given day, roughly how many dozen life forms are going extinct on any given day right now? We're, we're in a, uh, a hypersped mass extinction. We're pretty conclusive. It's because of things we've done, you know, even those idiots out there that want to argue otherwise and our society too, everything has to revolve on our own money. So we've got, if we can incentivize, things if we can make the better for us technology harmonizing with nature and the world less expensive both for entry and ease of use then like then we we don't have problems so let's let's innovate let's develop let's get it done and just start dropping off everything you know like let's we we know know what to do and we have a lot of ability to do it it's just got to be done people got it everybody's got (laughs) to do their part that's it You know, and some people only care about themselves and that's totally cool. Then the rest of us have to set a standard and make sure that that individual has to abide by our standards, clean energy, sustainable agriculture, whatever it is, universal health care, who cares, you know, pick an issue, but we just got to start doing this. I don't want to hear things like why Cleveland or what, you know, things like this happen in Silicon Valley or this or that, or, you know, these, it's like, no, like, yeah. What do you mean? Why Cleveland? Why not? Why not here? Why not do these things here? Why not be a model for other places, uh, cities similar to us, other places around the world? Why not? Let's Why just, not? Let's just do it all.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a
0: good mentality. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm optimistic things will happen. As humans, we have a limited lifespan. So a long time to us is not a long time in the sense of- Yes,
1: no, none of us make it out of the Cosmos.
0: <laughs> Right. So I always have to think about this because I'm like, oh, this is going to take like the next 20 years for this and that. And we've we've got the nonprofit project and we're we're working on, you know, we're not going to see results for 20 years from certain a certain thing. And we got to start it now if we want to see it to come to fruition and, you know, work. And it seems like a long period of time, but it's it's not a long period of time. So I think we just have to constantly like just step back from the progression of, time through our eyes and look at it more on a cosmic scale because then this whole question where do we fit in, in the world the universe we're exploring james james was space telescope looking as far back in time as possible. like and where where are we in all this and what what happens and and um you know we we really just 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 start doing stuff right now just work on it just get it done let's let's change things let's make a difference let's clean things up you know you may not get to enjoy it but many people after you are going to.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a humbling perspective.
0: Yeah, as opposed to like destroying everything now and not leaving anything. Like I, for one, would like to see humanity grow and prosper to a level where, no, where every single human across the planet, their needs and even some of their wants are met at a basic level think of any advanced civilization we would come across, uh, you know, as we're gazing out into the stars and exploring the cosmos and this sort of thing, like your envisionment of how advanced they are is like, you know, right out of sci-fi movies and they got fancy ships and artificial gravity and food and breathing and they can fly. Like we can have this shit.
1: <laughs> we could do it. Yeah. We can I, do don't, it. I don't know if you've ever read or encountered uh Buckminster Fuller. If this is a strange rabbit hole. I'll take us on for a sec, but he, uh, He's just kind of like this this mad lad of a human being uh, yes. in in his scientific explorations. But he had this line, and again, I'm gonna butcher this quote too. But it was something like, "We are the the stewards of this vessel, meaning the Earth, that our descendants will inherit, and it is a, a sobering responsibility considering our descendants comprise of infinitely many generations if we operate responsibly. Yeah, but only if we operate responsibly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like I was, I got an oil change this morning. I'm talking to the mechanic, and he said something about, you know, the futuristicness of some of the new cars. And like, even for them, none of the pop up screen technologies, they're not, the car makers aren't designing them intuitively for people that really control the car and the mechanics to work on them and stuff. And I was like, yeah, and Back to the Future too said we'd have flying cars by now. Like, where are they? Well, th- we do know like there are some small car esque vehicles. Now you can buy and fly around. They do exist and we can get to that, that future of those flying cars, but we gotta, we gotta buckle down. We gotta get yeah, together. Gotta down. We gotta make sure that every person's basic needs are met so that we can all not worry about this shit and be really productive and everybody start working on the flying cars Everybody start being able to, you know, create and innovate in anything they want because they're being housed, fed, and cared for. This is what we need to, we got to list, uh, lift up the, you know, the base level of acceptability in society is what we yeah. have to do. I, I love it. Yeah. And we can I do am- it through conviviality, food, and uh, just having a good time together.
1: Yes. Yes. I don't know. I like these detours, but I'll, I'll bring it back to Larder for a sec. Um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know, like we were talking about the beginning, you know, it's, it's not so much of a a hidden gem anymore. And even, you know, outside the the kind of joking nature of that, you know, you've, you've garnered some real recognition in, in the industry uh, and in the space. And, um, I'm curious, what are the biggest, you know, misconceptions maybe people have about, you know, what it is that you're doing and, and what has surprised you most about this journey so far in, in. The creation and building of larder.
0: I happen to be born in a time and place where the food traditions that I think are most delicious have been largely like forgotten about in day to day use. Just how our society's evolved, right? We've evolved enough careers that people can focus on creative, scientific, and art, artistic, and economic pursuits solely to for enjoyment or to make money from. We no longer have to worry about like do I have enough wood to start a fire to cook dinner tonight, you know, and keep the house warm, you know, or hunting an animal and making clothing from the skin. Like we don't have those kinds of worries anymore, you know? So we can, we can, we can focus in on, on these creative things. So I look back and I'm like, I'm just doing things that other people have done yeah because everybody forgot about all this stuff. They think it's new and exciting, <laughs> unique and special. <laughs> so every day I'm just like, you can do it too. Like this is this is like the the root of my ethos of cooking and you know, working with food and being able cuz cooking is not just about cooking. There's so much tied to cooking for an individual Okay. Hmm. Economic responsibility, like having to budget and feed yourself, understanding basic biological principles. How is it? Do I know if this is cooked right, bad? Does it smell off? Has it spoiled? Is this good for me to eat? You know, like those basic things, right, that we all take for granted, Uh, especially with refrigeration technology that wasn't even, I just read an article this morning that refrigeration technology in China wasn't widely available, did not hit 70% of households are above until 1981. Mm. Wow. is pretty new, you know? So like, you know, these basic things you have, you have your economic responsibilities, things like time management, um, basic use of biology and organic chemistry. Like all these, these are all happening every time you cook, you know, it's a interdisciplinary science and art and craft. So, I like to sum it up with like you can do it too, you know. If I can do this, and keep in mind, I was born with a club foot. I didn't walk on fully on my own till you know I was a few years old. Had braces and stuff up my legs. Student with learning disabilities, so I had like tutors and had to go to special classes all through elementary school, and middle school, and high school. Like if I can do any of this stuff, and people are like, "There's this world class what like you can do it too," so it kind of, you know, I'm in recovery from drugs and alcohol. Like I've got a lot of, I was born a cripple with learning disabilities and I'm an alcoholic, like odds are against me. So if I can do this, you can do it too.
1: Well, thank you for, for sharing that. It's, it's very cool. And and Larder is amazing. So
0: (laughs) well, thank you. You know, I, I really think, you know, some of the things that Larder is doing too. So we use The core of our cooking is based on the use of naturally occurring enzymes. Enzymes are like these Pac-Man powerhouses that that create all these actions and reactions in the world. Okay? On chemical levels, very small levels. The next, I think, phase of cooking in the 21st century is going to be enzyme optimization. Because through this and through this type of cooking, we can create to infinity. Based on whatever expression a chef wants and we can actually create food that's more flavorful, more delicious and has more bioavailable nutrients for our bodies to use instead of ones that can potentially just pass through us so we can help create diets that are more nutrient dense essentially allowing the body to absorb more nutrients in a food that it normally couldn't work out of a food. So in actuality, in the long run, people actually have to eat less food from a volume standpoint because we can unlock all these things in the food on a microscopic level that our bodies really need and that maybe we don't get or get enough of, these sorts of things. So I really think the next 10 years, refocusing on techniques that take uh advantage of using these enzymes, whether they're found inherently in an ingredient or added through most commonly different types of molds and fungi and single-celled, you know, beneficial bacteria have them. That is going to be the biggest thing in cooking, I feel, in the next 10 years. Hmm. And that's where we are rooted within our cuisine.
1: Yeah. I, you know, we've we've hit the every order of magnitude in this conversation from the the cosmos at a macro level to the the micro you know, bio biological underpinnings of it. Yeah. I, see, uh, my
0: problem is I think about all these things all at the same time constantly. So I'm <laughs> like, honestly, surprised I ever get anything done.
1: Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's, bring it to, to Cleveland as, as we wrap up here at, at, you know, what the, a
0: lovely place. Isn't Cleveland amazing? Frankly, we need more of that kind
1: of championing spirit. I think there's a, well, but.
0: so, and let me, you know, let's, I know we're trying to bring it, bring it local again, right? But like (laughs) big picture, the UN climate report that they just released recently pretty much says that given take sometime in around 2050, you know, plus or minus a decade or so, um, the Great Lakes region is going to be the one part of the US that's somewhat insulated from the drastic effects of climate change. So it's a hedge. They're forecasting for our population to like increase by six or eight fold. By 2050 of people fleeing wildflower fires and damaging storms on the coasts, droughts in the middle of the country, like people are going to start flocking to the Great Lakes. Cleveland is right on the Great Lakes. Someone is looking to set up (laughs) long term, sustainable, viable infrastructure for an influx of people. Cleveland's a great place to start doing business right now. Mm, mm. Right. It's a great place to raise a family. It's geographically stunning and you can be anywhere. I'm going to say anywhere in Cuyahoga County, which for those listening that aren't from Cleveland or the Cleveland area, if you live in the County that the city of Cleveland is, you say you're from Cleveland because there's all these little villages and hamlets and little towns and (laughs) outside of Cleveland, who knows what Parma Heights is and Solon and Gates Mills and Avon. Like nobody knows, you know, you say you're from there, Ohio. So Everybody, if you're from Cuyahoga County, if you're listening, you just say you're from Cleveland, even if you live like 30 minutes away from downtown. But you can get anywhere in Cuyahoga County in like 30, 35 minutes. It's great. It, it's very I lived highly in New York accessible. City, man. There'd be times just from our apartment in Brooklyn if we wanted to go upstate for the weekend or something. So it was like a 11 mile stretch from our apartment in Brooklyn to like the border of Westchester County, like right outside New York City. There'd be times that would take us two and a half hours.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like I I grew up in in New York as well. And so. Yeah. yeah, So
0: so the fact that no matter where you live, south, north coast, east, west, you can be anywhere in Cuyahoga in 35 minutes. Cuyahoga County, city of Cleveland. And it's amazing. And -hmm. within that 35 minutes to go from like the heart of like East 4th Street and like bumping party, urban lifestyle, awesomeness, right? Arts, culture, entertainment, drive 30 minutes south and be in the middle of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. That's pretty special, man.
1: That is, it is pretty special. It's pretty
0: amazing (laughs) that we can have that duality in under 30 minutes. So there's everything here, major sports teams. We got every major sport here, you know?
1: Yeah, all of them.
0: (laughs) The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like we've got the Cuyahoga River. You know, it's a national success story. It went from regularly catching fire. Imagine how much petrochemical flammable things have to be in water to actually set the water on fire. (laughs) And roughly now you can't eat fish out of there. Not a lot all the time. But we went from a burning river to something that supports an organism that we could eat and not die. Right. Right.
1: Well, you know, that feeds your optimism. Yeah. But that's, it, right? that's that an incredible could, success story. No, uh, absolutely. Right? You know, like, absolutely.
0: You know, we have plenty of other things we got to clean up and deal with, but like, yeah, it's happening in Cleveland. That's certainly man.
1: an improvement. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's an improvement, <laughs> right? You know, right.
1: it was really bad
0: and then it got better. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, let's please stop calling ourselves the rust belt. Like we, we we're, I'm working on this big writing project right now. And it's all about, people are using this term food waste, Right. How are we going to solve this food waste? All this extra food we have, it's waste. It's waste is trash is garbage. It's food misuse. We can't call it waste and then be like, I'm going to feed you that waste. Nobody's going to buy into that shit.
1: Right. Uh, Different branding. We can say when you misuse
0: your ingredients, this is when we have a problem. Here's how you don't misuse them so that nothing is left over. So trying to um, do these things, you can do them all in Cleveland. You can take a holistic approach to business in an area that's going to be relatively insulated from the effects of climate change that are really coming to a lot of people and they need to flee from. Think of how many people, me as a business owner in near downtown Cleveland, the amount of people I meet that have relocated to Cleveland during the pandemic from Chicago, L.A., New York, big Mm. cities, whether they're boomerangs coming back home or some other tie brought them here. It's, I'm meeting a lot of people relocating already. And that was just a a puny pandemic, you know, (laughs) that's nothing compared to, you know, the San Andreas fault ripping open and tearing California apart. That's going to happen sometimes. Different scales, (laughs) you know, so Cleveland's a great place, whether you're into arts, you're into culture, you're into the natural environment, whether you want a good place to raise a family with whatever your values may be. Uh, and tolerance for others. Cleveland, Cleveland's a pretty good place, man. As far as Midwestern middle tier cities go, I'd, I'd argue we've got a good amount of diversity, different ethnic populations that share who they are with uh, the rest of us. So we can experience them and celebrate them in our community for making us stronger and better. It's a great place.
1: It is and And perhaps the the perfect segue into uh the the traditional closing question that I have which uh which is for a hidden gem in the city
0: okay, so I'm hoping I'm about to give you one that you haven't heard before, but I could be totally wrong because it's so awesome. I just don't know why more people don't talk about it. The Cleveland Aquarium is great for an aquarium of its size in a city of our market mm. It, it really is. It's immersive. They have great displays there. They have a wide variety of fish. But I think one of the coolest things is, and I am not licensed, but I want to do this. If you are licensed as scuba, they have a big tank there with like a shipwreck. And that's where the sharks are and all the big, you know, big aquatic stuff is. Yeah, if you're yeah. licensed scuba, you can like rent out and go scuba-ing in there with like all their sharks and stuff. Oh, wow. So that's on my, that's one of my Cleveland bucket list things is to go scuba with sharks on the shores of the Cuyahoga River.
1: (laughs) I love that. I I think that might be a a first.
0: Yeah. I really want to do it. It's in the old powerhouse building, which is a cool, cool historic building, you know, down in the flats there. And so I say, if uh, the hidden gem would be scuba diving with sharks
1: (laughs) in the Cleveland Aquarium,
0: in the Cleveland Aquarium. (laughs)
1: <laughs> said said no one ever that's the first
0: that's my hidden gem there's so much yeah. good food out there i talk about food so much so I, I i didn't want to give you a restaurant or anything
1: yeah i we we could do a quick lightning round if you want but we, i'm we all we i'm have, all about yeah.
0: it we can do that i got a right. few more so minutes. just
1: just a, a quick quick uh lightning round here and we'll, we'll, we'll do cleveland food yeah what what is your personal favorite meals top top five
0: I recently, too, that have stood out uh, Cordelia doing the chef's uh, menu uh, there, uh, which is down on East 4th and Andrew Watts and um, Chef Vinny Simino Awesome. 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 And then out in Mentor on the Lake, Ninja Sushi and Hibachi. Oh, yeah. I forget. I think it's like Tuesday, Wednesday night. They offer a chef's omakase, which is a tasting menu. And uh, it can vary from 100 to $150 a head, depending on what's in season and what the chef's making. But you cannot find a dining experience like that any closer than Chicago or New York City. And definitely not for that price. It's incredible to think in Mentor on the Lake, there's this chef that's making some incredibly, incredibly progressive contemporary Japanese cuisine. In like a little strip mall next to a dairy mart.
1: It's incredible, yeah.
0: Yeah, those are those are probably two of the the biggest standouts as of late. But there's just so late, many great eats. There's so there's, there's so much. Yeah, yeah. like pizza. That's, it's,
1: it's an unfair question. Yeah, I, I,
0: like pizza. Like <laughs> what style? There's Sense Pizza. There's Il Rioni. I just ate um uh Chef Ben Ben Bebenroth. There's opening Booms Pizza in Lakewood. That's stunning. On the east side here, we've got Vero, we have Scorpacciata, we have Michael's Genuine. They're all doing a flower. Oh, my God. On the far east side, some of the best. Like so many people are doing so many great, great things. But I'd say if, if I could just instead of a top five, top two, that yes, Cordelia yes. And, and Ninja Sushi and Mentor on the Lake.
1: And then maybe one more, which is what are you most excited about from the Cleveland food scene going forward?
0: Overall, what I'm generally most excited about is that you can go almost anywhere in America and find a world class meal. And that has nothing to do with fine dining, has nothing to do with like, you know, with cuisine and, and all that stuff. Like it could be the best chicken sandwich you've ever had. It could be the French fries or it could be just the most stunning, you know, steak au poivre or, you know, roast duck or whatever it is but you can literally be almost anywhere in America and have that experience and what I'm most excited about is more often than not some places you really have to seek it out and it, yeah. it whether it's well known or not more often than not i can blindly go into some place in the cleveland area and have what i consider someone who's creating food at the top of their craft with skill, love, attention to detail, no matter what they're making, I find that more often than I don't find that. And that's what I'm most excited about in Cleveland, right? Like yeah. we're only – you can only get off the ground as far as the bottom wrong or the chain's only is, as strong as as the weakest link, you know, that sort of thing. So seeing that more often than not, I can cons- I can I get – and world-class food I means like – food cooked passionately by consummate professionals, right? That's what I mean. People who are putting their all, all their resources, financial and and internal into that, making something beautiful, whatever it is more often than not, I go into a place in Cleveland and that's what I find. So Mm. my prediction is more and more, that's more of what we'll find. And eventually there's not going to be any of this talk about, what's a Midwestern diet. They're all eating cheesy potatoes and <laughs> chips and you know, they just eat beef and corn, you know? Yeah. It's going to be like, yeah. no man, like we're as much of a melting pot and as much as a metropolis and, and you know, we're as metropolitan as any other of the big areas for or, sure. you know, for and sure. we're as off the grid as all the small areas and we've got it all for everybody. That's what we d- I'm super we do. excited about.
1: It is very exciting. And with that, I, I feel, though, we have to do a better job with our branding and championing of the Polish boy. That is that is a good sandwich. And it I don't think it gets the respect it deserves.
0: It's it's a great sandwich. It's more it's more <laughs> than a good sandwich. The the problem is I don't think a Polish boy is as uniting in Cleveland as it once was. So it, you used to be able to get it at a soul food cafe or at an Eastern European place and everything in between, you know. And I used to find like Polish boy flavored pierogi and that like I don't see a lot of that stuff anymore. I don't see the Polish boy isn't. And I think what it is, is we all have this ethos of like what the Polish boy is, who made it, what it should be. That like anytime anybody does their own spin on a Polish boy or just makes a Polish boy that that they would like, everybody's like, that's not a Polish boy so <laughs> stop fighting amongst yourselves you know we don't all have to be best friends. rally behind
1: the polish boys yeah we we the all don't varieties. have to be
0: best friends but <laughs> we've gotta we've gotta know each other and get along enough that like if i happen to graze your arm when i'm walking past you you're not gonna be like what's up bro you're gonna be like oh oh excuse me so yeah um yeah the polish boy definitely needs like definitely major uplifting but i think that's one of the problems for whatever reason. And I don't feel that any other food in Cleveland is judged as harshly.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe it's cause there's, I don't know where actually where the name comes from at all, but it is a Cleveland food is my understanding.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, like yeah. It, The, the name kind of comes from the, the hot dog you use is called a Polish sausage and a mm-hmm. Polish sausage in the Midwest is an all beef sausage that was heavy on black pepper and other spices and a natural casing. And they are a bit bigger around than a hot dog. So Polish sausage is a style of sausage that's made in like Poland and Germany and Ukraine. Just here yeah, it became yeah. known as the Polish sausage for some reason. <laughs> and then someone made a Polish boy. You know, I forget what restaurant was first. I used to know all this. It used to be locked in here. It probably still is someplace.
1: Some with the yeah. first
0: restaurant to do it and popularize it. And I mean, it's just a brilliant food. Amazing, yeah,
1: really, really good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, So
1: Jeremy, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your musings and and perspective on, on life and larder. Uh, this, this was awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope it was everything you expected, Jeffrey. Thank you for Uh, your time, man.
1: So much more. Yeah. If folks had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, I mean, other besides going to larder. Yeah. uh, Just come to larder and say hi. Yeah perfect
0: <laughs> that's all i got time for now i'm like i yeah. do all the social media and everything and i'm like uh i just a requested message i don't even open i just can't even get to you right now
1: <laughs> yep yeah we we'll come just stop we'll come in, say hello say
0: hi i'll shake your hand we can talk maybe sit on an egg cream together and you know it'll be all good
1: well thank, thank you again
0: jeffrey thank you man
1: that's all for this week Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at Pod Lay of the Land or at Sternhefe J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC.